0: This week's episode is brought to you by K16 Solutions. Whether you need help migrating course content to a new LMS platform or are looking for a more affordable way to archive student data, visit k16solutions.com to learn more about their migration and archiving solutions. That's (laughs) k16solutions.com.
1: Oh, look, Elmo, the
2: leaves are falling. In a recent video from Sesame Street, cuddly monster Elmo picks up an autumn leaf and remarks about its color to a pair of more human-like Muppets, who are sitting nearby on a park bench. This leaf is red, like Elmo's fur, he says. Then Elmo reaches for another leaf. This leaf is brown, like Russ's skin, he says, referencing the Muppet child. The adult Muppet tells Elmo that he's made a good observation. And then Elmo asks a question. Why, he wonders, does Russ have brown skin? Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Rebecca Koenig, a reporter and editor for EdSurge. As parents and teachers know, questions like Elmo's are quite common among very little kids. What's happening to make sure teachers are ready to answer those questions in ways that help children develop positive social identities encourage their self-expression, and help them feel comfortable and safe? And how are teachers themselves being supported in that work? This week, we're learning about how the field of early childhood education is changing curricula and practices to better address issues of race, racism, and equity. Joining me is Dr. Calvin Moore, Jr., CEO of the Council for Professional Recognition, which administers the Child Development Associate Credentialing Program that is considered um, foundational for early childhood educators. Uh, Welcome Dr. Moore, thank you for joining
1: us. Hi, I'm so glad to be with you today. Thank you for having me.
2: Um, I'd love it if you could introduce yourself uh, for us and tell us a little bit about your work.
1: So I'm Calvin Moore, CEO of the Council for Professional Recognition. For those who may not know what we do, we administer the National CDA Credentialing Program, which is the most widely used credential in the United States, and we have an international presence as well. Over 800,000 early childhood professionals have pursued and been awarded the credential. So we have a large population of folks who I would consider our major stakeholders in the ECE community. But you know what? I am celebrating an anniversary of sorts this year. This is my 30th year as an early childhood professional. I started working with young children in 1991.
2: Wow! Congratulations!
1: This is really exciting. So this is, I guess, the beginning of my anniversary tour.
2: Okay. Uh, and. Ha- how old are those, are those first little kids that you worked with now? Oh,
1: my God. They would be 34 or 35, depending on their birthday.
2: Wow. Wow. That's wonderful. And, you know, people that age probably have their own little ones.
1: That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing.
2: Well, that is a great segue to ask, how did you come into this field Uh, you know, 30 years ago or a little bit before, what led you to early childhood education?
1: So I must say that I do come from a long line of educators, right? My mom was an educator and a lot of my aunts and uncles were also teachers. And so um, I I don't know if I should attribute it to that because I had a different notion. I wanted to be, oddly enough, uh, a radio news anchor. Um, So when I first went to college, Uh, Right out of high school, I was in the communications field. But I decided to enter the military. And after four years in the Air Force, I was looking to complete my degree. And my aunt said, why don't you work full time and go to school part time and figure out if this education thing is really what you want to do? And she Uh, asked me to apply at the local Head Start program. So that's how I got into this field. I applied. I was hired as a teacher aide in a local Head Start program. And they immediately uh, enrolled me in a CDA program. And I pursued my CDA. In 1992, I was awarded a preschool CDA. So I'm actually the first CEO at the council who actually have achieved the CDA in my career and and that was a launching pad. As you know, um I went on to pursue a bachelor's degree, a master's and a PhD in early childhood education, but I do attribute the CDA as my launching pad into this great career.
2: That's wonderful. And um where was that local head start? Where was home for you?
1: In Birmingham, Alabama. Yes.
2: It's so it's so interesting to hear um you know, that you started out in the field and kind of have come full circle to, to be at the place that, that um, you know, administers this credential now. Um, I'm interested to know, um, you know, are there major things that have, that have changed in the past 30 years um, or are, are young children kind of the same as they've always been?
1: So I think young children have always been resilient and so much about child development is the same. I think we know more than we did 30 years ago about how children grow and learn. Uh, But I think if I were to try to narrow down the biggest change in our field would be the advent of technology. I think uh, the use of technology and um, devices in classrooms, have really propelled us in a different direction than I imagined in 1992. In fact, in 1992, I was one of those teachers that was against computers in classrooms. So I've changed uh, that paradigm as well and have fully embraced the idea that children uh, need to be exposed to uh, technology uh, early in their uh, schooling. So, so that's the, been the, the major change for me, but so much about our field and and what we are struggling to achieve has not changed, like uh, higher wages for early childhood professionals and benefits, and uh, all of those things that we still grapple with as a field. Um, unfortunately, those things have persisted.
2: Um, something that we have seen, uh, you know, in the past several years, but of course, it is it is not new. Um, is you know, renewed national focus, it seems like, on teaching children about race and racism and racial equity. Um, You know, an example that I noticed was Sesame Street coming out with some new resources and videos about racial literacy. Um, But I'm sure this did not just happen overnight. And I'm curious if you could share some context for why and how these conversations are kind of bubbling up Um, on these topics in early childhood education?
1: So like many fields, I think we as early childhood professionals respond and try to meet the moment. And I think our society to a larger degree uh, are refocusing, our society is refocusing on racial equity uh, and identity and sort of grappling with that. And so in child development, We've always been concerned about culture, identity, uh, race, ethnicity, and try to support children as they uh, grow and develop and learn about differences in society. Uh, and so I think we're trying to meet the demand uh, of, or the pressure that society is experiencing around these issues. And, and, and I think um, things have happened that children have been exposed to, their parents uh, our policymakers that have made this more urgent than perhaps it was thirty years ago, um, and what we know is that even children who grow up in loving homes experience this um, tension around culture and biases, and and not just biases that may exist in their local communities, but the larger society as well. And so that also, I believe, provides some context for why this is so important right now, in this present moment.
2: What do young children perceive and know when it comes to race or other differences? You know, what is age appropriate um, to teach them, but also what should parents and educators expect from them, you know, at their very young ages?
1: Well, I don't think they come here knowing that or appreciating the differences as much as they um, would when they start going to elementary school, for example. They come truly as a sponge soaking in information about the world around them. And they express curiosity about the world around them in really unique ways. And so a child development professional understands that, that children sort of grapple with that and need the space to explore their environment without the trappings of the biases that we sort of know exist in the larger Uh, Society. And I think that programs are becoming more aware of how children need that playing field to explore the differences that may exist. And we start with the child making sure that they develop a really strong self identity and self esteem, and then we build the context around the child, helping them explore others and their differences, uh, and helping them uh, recognize and appreciate those differences, and then. Small things like helping them share and take turns and say, please, then thank you.
2: You know, is a preschool a place to start talking about race or bias or things like that? I'm kind of curious, especially, you know, having seen some of these Sesame Street videos, it, it was not obvious to me that the Sesame Street audience Um, is ready for that kind of conversation. But that could just be, you know, more of an adult squeamishness than anything a child would be upset or worried about.
1: Oh, no, I think it's the perfect backdrop for some of these experiences. And Sesame has been a leader in this regard for many, many years, just sort of highlighting those differences in ways that children can palette, right? For example, an infant in a classroom setting uh, may touch a child's hair who's very different than theirs, and that can start a wonderfully dynamic uh, exchange between the teacher and those children. And so the preschool environment is the perfect backdrop to sort of lay the foundation of acceptance and um, uh, exploring these differences, I think, in ways that children understand and can build upon.
2: And we know, of course, as you mentioned, kids are curious and they ask questions. Um, and I, I imagine that those questions sometimes, you know, hit hit on these topics that you know parents may or may not feel equipped equipped to answer or or know how to deal with appropriately.
1: Well, I, you know, I I have a really good example of of something that happened to my daughter when she first went to kindergarten. Um, and it's it's a very strident example, so you'll have to excuse me, but but she was, I think, five years old at the time, and I'm an early childhood professional, and she came home, she was crying, and she said, my classmate called me uh, white trash, and so um, my, my daughter was not upset about being called white. Now, my children are mixed race. Uh, my wife is Filipino. I'm black, so they're you know, mixed race. And so we've had some of these conversations, but we have never talked about black, white, brown. You know, we've never talked about that. So I was upset that the the young girl had called her trash, right? And my daughter said, yes, but dad, am I white? You know, she was like, you know, she she was like, you're missing the point. I need some more information. So sometimes these conversations are difficult for parents, even when you have the early childhood background, but they can also be stark and strident and, and challenging for other reasons. Like, I never thought of talking about my daughter about those color differences. And it took a, an experience in a classroom setting to bring that to light. Sometimes it just escapes us um, as parents about what conversations really would benefit our child going out into the world, right?
2: <laughs> That's That is a funny one. Um, are there any you know, curricula or books or programs that you think do interesting work or a good job when it comes to addressing these topics with children? I don't know if there's any your organization highlights in particular or any you just like as, as an educator yourself.
1: Well, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, highlight our essentials for working with young children, which is... Uh, the go-to textbook for early childhood professionals, particularly those that are pursuing their CDA credential. And you know, in our Essentials Workbook, we talk about culture, race, identity, self-esteem, all of those major components that we've been talking about today. But, but I also, as a professional, I also always point to the anti-bias curriculum that's published by NAEYC, the National Association for the Education of Young Children, That's a wonderful curriculum supplement that I think every early childhood professional needs. And then also, I'm not sure if your listeners would be um, as knowledgeable about the Pyramid Model, um, which is a relatively new curricula that is really gaining a lot of steam in our community. And um, I happen to serve on their board and I'm learning a lot more about Uh, the curriculum myself in that it really wants uh, early childhood professionals to provide a really positive, constructive environment and sort of builds on these intentional uh, relationships and dynamics between uh, the adult and the child. And so it really supports, I think, Uh, the kinds of foundations that teachers and children need to establish so that race, ethnicity, culture, all of those things that we've been talking about are really um, uh, intentionally uh, appreciated and explored in classrooms.
2: After the break, we talk about what data on discipline reveals about implicit bias.
1: What do Northeastern
0: University, Rutgers, Wake Forest University, CSU Fullerton, and St. Mary's University of Minnesota all have in common? Well, they and dozens of other institutions around the globe have used K-16 solutions to help them migrate to their new LMS. Gone are the days of burdening faculty with manually moving LMS content, or paying for a white glove service. Both options are archaic, riddled with errors requiring a tremendous amount of course reconstruction, and both are manual processes. Introducing Scaffold by K16 Solutions. Scaffold is a revolutionary product that allows you to move online content from one LMS to another in real time, capturing details such as course structure, quizzes, tests, and even question pools using sophisticated but simple automation. Scaffold replaces what used to be a manual resource-intensive operation, transforming LMS course migration into a quick, accurate, and affordable process. Most importantly, scaffold migration requires little to no manual intervention by faculty, staff, or anyone else. To learn more about K16 Solutions' automated LMS migration solutions, visit k16solutions.com. That's k16solutions.com. Now back to the episode.
2: Um, When it comes to you know, disciplining children or dealing with their their behavior. I didn't even realize that you could be suspended from preschool, but I am now aware that there's data to show that um, Black children in particular are suspended more often than white peers. And I'm curious, you know, what is going on there and what might be done about it?
1: That's really unfortunate. I think the research says that, like, Preschoolers are three times more likely to be expelled, right, in kindergarten, right? And that um, boys are more likely to be expelled than girls. And I think black boys, right, are really more likely because of their behavior to be expelled or suspended in preschool, right? right. So it's really an interesting uh, research uh, data point to, to explore why it's happening. I think it's happening because teachers are not equipped to deal with some of the behaviors that manifest in classrooms. And and it's also maybe uh, the work conditions that teachers may not have the supports that they need to deal with some of those behaviors. Um, I also believe that teachers sort of misunderstand young children's behavior to a large degree and may not understand how to to wrap around some of those um, uh, instructional supports that they need. And then implicit bias. I think top on the list, even though I didn't mention it first, I think we're predisposed sometimes because of our implicit bias, our unconscious negative beliefs about behavior. Right. And uh, we need to deepen our understanding of implicit bias so that I mean, if we have any hope of reducing these uh, attitudes, we have to really unpack why we have these um, unfounded negative beliefs about black and brown children.
2: Uh, You mentioned, you know, perhaps some teachers not having full supports or, or the resources that they need. I, I'm interested to talk a little bit about the workforce of early of early education and how that relates to questions of racial equity. um, And, you know, other other kinds of equity as well for gender, for example.
1: Yeah, it's really something I've been interested in where gender is concerned. You know, the early childhood field in particular is more uh, of a female dominated profession. And I've oft, often believed that we have to fix that if we want to improve some of the working conditions like um, higher pay, um, better benefits, uh, better working conditions. I think we might need a much more diverse uh, field than we have right now and and I'm talking about gender diversity uh, I think it'll put some pressure on uh raising uh wages and and I may be a minority in that in that regard, thinking that more men in the field will bump up raises, but I think men don't persist in our field because of low wages and 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 maybe we need to figure out ways to help them persist uh to improve so that all the boats can rise together. The other thing I would say about uh, the workforce is that even though we're we are a diverse workforce in terms of race uh, I mean it's like sixty forty or fifty five you know forty five depending on what data you look at um but the the fact that we are diverse is not enough to to move the needle on how we can improve things because depending on what community you live and work in, you feel the pressure of um the lack of diversity or um, you feel the pressure of some of those uh, systemic uh, manifestations of racism that you may not feel in other communities. So so in a more affluent community, they are much more removed from the impact of those systemic racism uh, manifestations than uh, black and brown communities. And so we have a lot to do and unpack so that people feel that we are making a difference in that regard.
2: And when it comes to credentials like the CDA, um, what, what goals do you have for the workforce? You know, is it, is it the case that every early childhood educator has to have at least a CDA or, you know, are, are there different standards depending on where you go and, um, different places where people have different access to those credentials as opposed to, um, you know just maybe having a high school diploma and and nothing more specific
1: No, I I am not I do not shy away from believing that every early childhood professional whether they are pursuing an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree should start with the CDA, right? The unique thing about the CDA is that it is portable across state lines and that it can easily be embedded in any degree program because we believe the CDA is the best first step. Yes, so every chance I get to talk to a policymaker I'm saying, "Listen, whether they're getting an AA degree or a BA degree or a BS degree, they need to have the CD access to the CDA credential along the way because it is a competency-based credential. It's not uh it does not Uh, solely focus on some of the academic regimen that a more traditional degree program would. And for that reason, because of our competencies, I think every early childhood professional would benefit from that. So, yes, it is about advocating for the CDA being the best first step. But I think it's also about access in general, because we know, uh, particularly for early childhood professionals in black and brown communities, they don't have access to college education like, um, you know, other more affluent individuals in our society,
2: and where where can people get this training? Um, do people get it f- through community colleges? Are there online CDA programs? Um, if I'm someone who hears that I that I should have this credential to to be a great educator, where can I find it?
1: So you start with our website because we do have a very uh, interesting list of uh, CDA training. Um, organizations ac- around the country that we partner with. So you could find some resources on our website. But yes, I received my CDA training through the local community college. So um, there are access points, right? In, in some states, uh, the community college uh, access points are huge. I know in Alabama, um, up and down the state, east and west. Uh, you have access to community colleges and most of them offer CDA training. But there are other training organizations, child care resource and referral organizations. There are online training organizations that are, are nationally available to folks no matter where you live, um, that you can easily access the CDA training. And in most states, through the CCDF funding, uh, you can have this paid for. Right. Through scholarships and other mechanisms. So the CDA training is widely available if folks know where to look.
2: Um, I know that the council uh, itself is working to build equity more deeply into its programs. Um, What are some of the details about that and and why has that become uh, a priority?
1: So, we, when I became the CEO in May of last year, I really was interested in this equity lens and how we can sort of shore up some of the work that we're doing, and not just in our CDA credentialing process, but to take a look at our publications. And when I was deputy director of the Office of Child Care, I ran into a colleague, uh, Dr. Chantel Meek, who was working uh, in the administration at the time. And uh, we sort of hit it off. And when I became CEO, I knew that she was the director of the Children's Equity Project um, out of Arizona. And I wanted to make sure that we found a way to do some interesting work around equity. She's the subject matter expert around equity. I'm the subject matter expert around child development. And I thought it would be a great marriage for us to find a way to to look at at all of our, our supports around the CDA. And so uh, she applied for a grant through the Trust for Learning uh, Foundation. And through that grant, we have uh, designed a review of our publications so that this equity lens, even though I think we've been a leader in this regard, but to make sure that the the best thinking and the best research uh, can be uh, laid on top of the work that we've already done. Uh, through our publications, and it's going really well. Um, But not only are we reviewing the publications, we're going to develop an equity strategic plan to help us think about uh, all of the components of our credentialing to make sure that this equity lens is right at the top of our priority
2: you have shared a couple of personal experiences. I wonder if there are any others that highlight any of the themes we've talked about. I know, for example, that you've written a book about men in early childhood education. And I just wonder if there's any, if there are any stories to
1: share. Well, you know, I, I do have a lot of anecdotes in that book. Right. Uh, and then some that I, I probably are not as uh, eager to share, but I will say that uh, writing about uh, teacher retention from a male teacher perspective was really eye-opening for me because of uh, the different experiences I had, and and being in a female-dominated profession um, in of itself is is interesting. Uh, when I first started working in this field, um, I was often the one asked to take out the trash, put in the light bulbs. Right. To talk to children who are having uh, some behavior issues. There's something about the male voice in an early childhood classroom that children really pay attention, uh, even though, you know, uh, I didn't think my voice was all that special. But somehow children (laughs) would pay attention to me more readily than uh, my female counterparts. And and so I, I think that that sort of helped me understand that men and women are different in our field. But there are some things that we can learn from each other. Uh, in the field as well. For example, if I saw two children uh, wrestling on the playground, my natural propensity was not to necessarily run and break it up, whereas my female counterpart, because she's more mothering and nurturing, would want to break up the tumbling, right? Uh, And so we learned from each other to to take uh, the best of our teaching practices and borrow the goodness and and reflect in that way. Uh, And I think that that richness uh, is not felt in all situations because of a lack of diversity uh, in our field, and so yes, a lot of those anecdotes came forward in some of my writings, um, but mostly in in living and being a male in this field
2: um, I know that some you know pretty prominent folks, including former ed secretary Arnie Duncan, have put early childhood education, you know, kind of at the top of their priority list, saying things like this is the most important investment society can make. Why is that? And, you know, what role can early education play for individuals, for families, and then more broadly for the neighborhood, for the country?
1: Well, I think, um, Arnie duncan is really tapping into the return on the investment right I think if we look at the research we know for every dollar that is invested in early childhood I think if we invest in head Start for example the return is huge the society gets maybe seven or eight dollars back um, in so many different ways by investing in young children and I think that's um, I think the 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 best um, data point that I could put forward in answer to your question, but also there's so many other reasons why we should be supporting the early childhood workforce um, and investments in young children uh, so that parents can go back to work. I mean, it's really part of the economic infrastructure of this country to make sure that every child, no matter how young they are, have safe places to be while their parents are working. And um, that support system is really um, at the forefront of our discussions because of COVID-19 that really not only decimated the economic uh, fabric of the country, but took a real sharp aim at the child care community. Um, and I know in many communities, child care programs went away and may not ever come back. And that means that that community will struggle to support the larger economic fabric of that community, which is a a crisis at this moment. And I'm understanding that there's a shortage and there has been a shortage of teachers long before the pandemic, but certainly now we're gonna be grappling with that. And so an investment in the early years makes sense so that we can develop a strong qualified pipeline into this uh, field uh, for the future.
2: Well, thank you so much. It's been so interesting. I have really appreciated uh, learning from you today.
1: Well, thank you, Rebecca. It's always a pleasure to be with you. So you call on me anytime you want to. And I will make sure that everyone knows I started my anniversary tour with Ed Surge and Rebecca on your podcast. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much. This has been the Ed Surge podcast. Each week, we bring you stories like this one. If you like the show, please share it on social media or tell a friend. And we hope you'll subscribe to the EdSearch podcast so you don't miss future episodes. For more coverage of how education is changing, sign up for EdSearch newsletters or check out our website, edsearch.com. There's even a newsletter for this podcast. Just go to the EdSearch homepage, click on Newsletters at the top right to sign up. This episode was written by me, Rebecca Koenig. You can find me on Twitter at Becky underscore Koenig. Editing this episode was by Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.